really something to be here. So many dear friends. And as I'm looking here, so many names are coming back to me and so many aren't coming back to me. <laughs> but it's so good to be here. We were here uh, 2011 to 2013, about September to September. Marla was one when we immigrated from Australia. You'll remember Erin's Canadian, I'm an Aussie. We lived there for two years, then we came here. And we were here for two years. And then when we left after two years, Lewin was three months old and he was baptised here a couple of weeks before we left. And Lewin, was, of course, wanted to come today and he's here today with me. And Erin is with Marla, she's doing profession of faith at First Christian Reformed Church, uh, where Trevor and Julia Vanderveen are. Those two, there were such precious years, you know, and I was kind of uh, crying through, the, through some of the singing. One of my tissues is very damp. So many precious weddings, so many births, and precious funerals and tragic deaths. It's very significant. And I don't know how I'm going to get to the Bible. I want you to know that you guys are really a blessing to us. You are really a blessing to us in those two years. That being here was just what we needed. That you're good people and you loved us well. You loved us well, you know. I remember one time Nick Ringmer and I had, had a fight had an argument about something to do with worship. I can't remember what it was, Nick. I remember being angry and upset. And we had a, just at our house, we lived quite close to Nick and Margaret at the time, and, and it was around dinner time, and Nick just knocked on the door with one of his granddaughters and had leftover cake from his birthday, half a cake, full of chocolate and jelly that he kind of tidied up and recoated. And you know, he didn't apologise, he didn't say anything about what had happened, he just gave me the cake. You know. Isn't that beautiful, you know? So it's good to be here. Erin's sorry she's not here. Well, let's... Uh, I understand you guys are journeying through Luke's Gospel, and so uh, I chose Luke 14, and Luke 14 is where we'll be now. I invite you to open up in your Bible to Luke 14. I won't read it through now, I'll read it as we go. But Luke 14, if you want to grab the slide there, Jamie. Jamie, by the way, must have been in year eight when we were here, and Sam had just graduated high school, so that dates it. So it's the tale of two meals, Luke 14. How did I, I don't put Luke 7 there, how ridiculous. Luke 14 is two meals, Luke 7 is another meal. The first meal is a real meal, 
at a Pharisee's house that Jesus is invited to. And then the second meal is a fictional meal. Jesus tells a parable. He tells the story of a meal while he's there having a real meal at the Pharisee's house. Do you know what I mean? Meal within a meal. There's a real meal and then Jesus tells a story about a meal. Just reading Henri Nouwen this morning about meals, he wrote, a meal together is one of the most intimate and sacred human events. Around the table we become vulnerable, filling one another's plates and cups and encouraging one another to eat and drink. Much more happens at a meal than satisfying hunger and quenching thirst. Around the table we become family, friends, community, yes, a body. Meals always stand for something significant, don't they? From an ordinary meal to a special meal. One special meal I shared just before coming here. Erin was now in Australia at this time and she was missing Canada like anything. And it came to October and we decided to have my first Thanksgiving meal there on a hot Sydney October day. And we had to scour Sydney for a turkey. We had to scour Sydney for a turkey. And we found one after hours of searching and literally drove across the city one hour and a half each way to get a turkey and cranberry sauce. Forget it. I hadn't, even, I hadn't even heard of cranberries. But we had this Thanksgiving meal outside in the Sydney heat. Erin was on cloud nine, and I loved it. I'd never seen a chicken so big. <laughs> but here we are, you know, Australia, fused with Canada. You know, meals stand for stuff. Meals symbolize stuff. Cultural anthropologists tell us that meals shift things. They shift social relations. That's what we see here in Luke chapter 14, not Luke chapter 7. New Testament scholars write that a number of New Testament scholars have said that Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. And you read Matthew or Luke, and Jesus does seem to do more eating, eating than he does teaching. And of course, you read a little more closely and you see Jesus did a lot of his teaching, slash most of his teaching, while he was eating at table. And that's what we're seeing here in Luke chapter 14. Jesus is teaching at a meal. So let's just grab the next slide and, and just kind of see Jesus eating his way through the Gospels. These are just a few of the meals in the Gospels. The Last Supper and Jesus feeding the 5,000. Those two meals occur in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Jesus feeds the 4,000 in Matthew and Luke. Jesus' meal with Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, every Gospel but John. But it's in Luke's Gospel especially that we encounter Jesus' meals. Two kind of culinary confrontations with the Pharisees in Luke 7 and 14. And Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Jesus eats his way through the Gospels. And there's many, many more. The road to a mass meal. Well, let's go to the first meal now. The beginning of Luke chapter 14. Luke 14 verse 1. Luke tells us that Jesus is eating at a Pharisee's house. But can you picture the scene? It says in verse 7 that Jesus notices how the guests are choosing places of honour. 
The guests are choosing places of honour at this Pharisee's house. If we could just grab the next slide. Now just imagine that you and I, oh rats, oh the picture didn't work. What a shame it didn't transfer. Okay, I'll have to describe it. So it's a Roman meal and what it is is people didn't sit on seats. People reclined on flat sofas without a back. So what you have to imagine is that this is the slide, right? Let me do it here. There's a recliner about so high, just here, and three people recline, lying down on their left arm. And then there's a second recliner here. <clears throat> Again, three people will fit on that. And then there's a third recliner here. And your side is the doorway into the room, into the house. And you and I aren't invited, but we can stand outside and look in. And it's about jostling for honour. So in a Roman meal, the host will recline at this couch here, and the guests with the highest status will be invited to recline on this recliner here. And the most honourable seat is in three people on each couch, and the most honourable position is in the middle. And then this recliner here is for guests with less status. And the positioning is significant because if we stand at the door, you and I, I mean outside there's no honour at all, but if we look in we see that middle recliner and that middle person who has the most status. And this is the way Roman meals worked and it's the way that this meal would have worked. And so Jesus notices that the guests choose the place of honour in verse 7. And just to say too, the rank of these guests can affect the quantity of food and the quality of the food. Now here's a fun question, and I don't know the answer to the question. Where do you think Jesus would have been invited to sit? So I just invite you to choose, to think about it, and to chat with the person next to you. Where do you think Jesus would have been invited to sit? Just chat for 30 seconds. It's kind of fun question, isn't it? It's a kind of fun question. I mean, I don't know. I would guess he would have been invited to the place of less status. I would guess, but, but maybe not. I would guess so. Now he's been watching the jostling, and now he shames those who've been invited for their jostling, and it's an honor-shame culture. Let me read from verse 8. I invite you to follow along. Jesus says to those who've been invited, when you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, Give this person your place, and then in disgrace you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It was a social practice of the day to jostle for honour especially among males who operated in the public sphere. 
This was the role of males in Greco-Roman society, to compete for honour. And Jesus' words are a reversal of the cultural, social assumption. He says, all who exalt themselves will be humbled. That's the opposite of what people in that society thought. And then, it doesn't stop there, Jesus now shames the host. Now the host would be sitting here on this recliner. And he criticizes him for, for having only invited those who could be expected to repay the favor. And again, this would have been the norm at the time, to offer a kindness in a cultural system of, of balanced reciprocity. Payback. I invite you, you invite me. Jesus teaches instead, verse 13, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. So it says from verse 12, he also said to the one who invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they might invite you in return and you would be repaid. Man, it's interesting. It's a, it's a good passage for me to be in today. It's a very challenging passage. Honor shamed culture. Males jostling for honor in the public sphere. Aaron and I live in East Van now. And, you know, we experience honor and shame at table two. Something that we've noticed is uh, just when we invite different guests, how we feel. So to fess up, our table, our plates and our crockery doesn't match too well. <clears throat> our glasses don't match very well. And our table isn't beautiful. And uh, I say that with a tinge of regret, because I really love when a table looks beautiful. But Aaron and I just can't do that. We're not very good at it. And so we love cooking, we love hosting, we host a lot, but it doesn't look nice, you know, it doesn't look great, you know. Some of you probably uh, might be the same as us, and, and some can probably present a beautiful table. But, you know, we've noticed that when we host other people uh, who are doing well in life, maybe... Uh, couple who are scholars or, or a couple who, who have two good incomes, they might come and sit at our table and I feel a bit ashamed of the way our table looks, on a shame. And I can feel a bit embarrassed the way our table looks. Not a lot, but a bit. But then I've noticed that when our vulnerable friends come and eat with us, I notice they walk into our house and they look around and they get the feeling that they don't belong here. That it's too nice for them, too good for them. And I notice that, that they feel shame. And then I, I just think to myself, gosh, it's so important that I'm with them right now. And I'm seeing myself through their eyes. When different people dine with us, on a shame. I've noticed that, Aaron and I have noticed that. Well, here is, that's the first meal. The first meal is actually a meal where they actually ate. And wherever Jesus is sitting, now Jesus tells a story of a second meal. Let's say Jesus is sitting here. So he tells a story now of a second meal, and it's a parable. He tells a story of a meal that is sort of the feast of the kingdom of God. And he's really saying, this is my feast. This is my meal in this story. So, 
It's a banquet like the one he's attending, except it's make-believe. And it's in the parable of this great banquet, as it's called, the host invites the wealthy friends to dine with him, just like this host has done. But they make excuses and they refuse to come. They won't come to his meal. One's bought a field, the other's bought oxen. They say, I can't come. One's just got married. They say, I can't come. I've got to play this piano. It's been nine years, man. It's been nine years, right? Come on. I'll play it a couple of times, but you remember that kid's song? Is it, was it in Canada too or just Australia? I can't sing, but I'm going to pretend I can. It's like, I cannot come to the banquet to trouble me now. I have married a wife, I have I have fields and dominions that comes to praise him. Pray hold me, excuse me, cannot come. <laughs> Didn't really deserve a clap, but thank <laughs> I remember um, when I was eight years old, you know, we were thought we were so funny. Um, we, we changed the words to, I have bought me a wife, I have married a cow. You know, we thought <laughs> so funny. Funniest thing, you know. We'd sing it loud, you know, so the teacher would hear, you know. And so the host, then, this host in the parable, in the life of the story, the host then invites the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame to come in the place of those people who had been invited. And the people in the second guest list have no social status whatsoever, and that's what he does. And in terms of the mores of the day, those elite friends who said no are really shaming the host. And then the host, by inviting the poor and the cripple, is shaming himself, according to the social code of honour shame. So much so that friends may break ties with him, and even relatives may break ties with him, because of who he's associating with. That's in the life of the story. But what Jesus is teaching is about the kingdom of God. And Jesus is showing the upside-down way of the kingdom of God. The upside-down way of the feast of the kingdom of God. Of those who are elite, those who you would expect to be there, those who have honour, surprisingly, for all sorts of reasons, end up not there. And those who are the last you would expect, those who don't have honour, those who appear to be sinners on the surface of things, end up there. And Jesus just tells a story. The upside-down way of the kingdom of God. And then he lives, leaves it to us to understand it. But he models it in his own life. You know, just before we got on a plane to come here, just before we arrived at Willoughby, I, I hosted my first Alpha course, which is like a, an evangelistic course where you share meals and you talk about Jesus. And I explained at this meal uh, that time in the Gospels where Jesus heals the demoniac, uh, the man who's possessed by an evil spirit. The evil spirit goes out of the man and into the herd of pigs. Remember that? And the pigs run down the hill and drown in the river. And we were around the table, and there was a man who had lived a really hard life, in and out of addictions, found it really hard to hold down a job. 
you know, he'd kind of experienced the underbelly of life. And then the, in the story now, the man who's had the demon cast out of him, it says he, he started to follow Jesus. And then Jesus sends him back to his family. But it says he started to follow Jesus. And I, and I, said, I said to our gathering, I said, why do you think he wanted to follow Jesus? And my friend, who was doing it tough, he said, because in Jesus he'd found someone safe. Isn't that beautiful, you know? You know, there's something about it when, when we're struggling. You know, we're on the bo- when we're on the bottom of the heap, that's when we, Jesus touches us. And that's where we're ready to receive him. It's true, isn't it? Of all of our lives. No one's ever said, the year I really came to know Jesus passionately was the best year of my life. No. We come to know Jesus more intimately in the hard times. The upside down way of the kingdom of God. So there's this reversal of the unresponsive elite and the responsive people who are unexpected. This is grabbing this next slide here. We've got this tale of two meals. One meal is real, the other one is fictional. One meal has a picture, one meal doesn't have a picture. And there's this strong contrast between the Pharisees' competitive jostling for status in an actual meal served in his home, and this contrast with the upside-down way of the feast of the kingdom of God. Man, I find this challenging, you know. And I've just... Just in my life right now, I want to plunge the depth of it. I heard a story the other day. I've just flown back from Portland. And a lady there had a dream, like a, a dream about Jesus. She was in a cafe sharing a coffee with Jesus in the cafe. She said it was the most beautiful dream. Isn't that lovely? She, it was a real blessing to receive that dream of sharing a coffee with Jesus. She just shared a coffee with him. Then, about a week later, she was at her church midweek, and it was a meal for people who were street adjacent, people who were doing it tough and didn't have food, gathered for a meal at her church. Well, she was sitting there with a friend, a friend who wasn't vulnerable, and a man walked past her who, who her friend said, had an incredible stench. You know, he hadn't showered for months. And it was the kind of smell that was so bad that this man who I heard the story from had a, a disgust, that kind of disgust reflex. And the lady said, ah, that's the smell that I smelt when I was in the cafe with Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful story? The upside down way, the kingdom of God. That Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. And the remarkable thing about Jesus' eating habits is that he was eating with all the, in inverted commas, wrong people in the eyes of Greco-Roman society. But through the lens of the kingdom of God, all the right people. One New Testament scholar, Herbert Anderson, said, they killed him because of the way he ate. So in our own family's life, this is important for us. Over COVID, we've had uh, two deaths that are close to us. We've had two vulnerable friends 
who have been kind of street adjacent and suffering from addictions, who we've sort of, it's our privilege, we've been family with them and they've come to all our kids' birthdays parties and, and hung out with us. But at the beginning of COVID, we lost John. And then just this last month, we've lost Val. We've lost both of our beautiful friends. And they were just a gift to us and kind of makeshift family with us. And they showed us Christ, you know. And so now Aaron and I are wondering what's next, you know. That's a big missing piece in our life, losing John and Val. And we're praying for, yeah, just a way into um, some new friends, you know, some new people to be makeshift family with. I wonder what the invitation is for you regarding in light of these two meals as they contrast and show us the upside down way of the kingdom of God. I wonder what the invitation is for you. I don't know, but I leave you with those two beautiful images of those meals. Well, I want to finish by playing the piano properly this time. Um, when we came to Willoughby, my favourite hymn quickly became This Is My Father's World. I'd never heard that hymn before coming to Willoughby, and then during those two years it became my favourite, and it's still my favourite. So I'd love to play this hymn, and while I do, I just invite you just to sit with these words and just think of the way that God's gifted you with the pain as well, and what is the invitation in these two meals as you share in the gifts of God with others at table.
Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.